Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. And this is an amazing passage. It's a very wonderful passage. A lot of what we're reading in this chapter, uh, as opposed to the previous chapters in the Book of John, a lot of this is narrative. It's telling of a story. Not as much dialogue. Not as much of um, at least not the teachings of Jesus. He's there, and he is the main character but it's a little bit different of a layout than the previous chapters uh, in John that we have looked at. Uh, Okay, so to bring you up to speed, if you remember, Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, and he spoke up on that last day of the feast, that great day of the feast, and he said that if any man comes to me uh, that that, that thirsts, let him come to me and I will uh, give him living water. Uh, kind of similar to what he spoke to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. But at the end of John chapter 8, there was an angry crowd of Jewish people that did not believe the truth of what Jesus was saying. And they were kind of hostile against him because he called them sinners. He said that they needed to be made free from uh, being servants of sin. We read that famous verse where it says, You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. That was said by Jesus to a crowd of Jewish people that were quote-unquote believing, meaning they were understanding and on the same page as him up to that point. But as soon as he mentions, you're the servants of sin, everything just gets flips on, flipped on its head. It completely changes uh, the kind of feeling of the, uh, of the attitude of the people that he's talking to, to great hostility and wrath, to the point that at the very end of John chapter 8, they're actually picking up stones to stone him for blasphemy. When he says, uh, before Abraham was, I am, and they take up stones to stone him. Stone him. Got a question? Or you just... Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so, this is the context. He is still in Jerusalem. He removed himself from an angry crowd of religious Jews who sought to stone him for claiming to be God. And we pick it up in verse 1 of John chapter 9. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So if you can imagine this, Jesus is in Jerusalem. And maybe it's like, you know, driving through Garner 4042 area on a Sunday, and you see people that are by the roadside begging, okay? And the disciples, they see this man who was obviously blind. They could tell just by looking at him. You know, maybe he was kind of stumbling around with a stick, or maybe he was just kind of laying there. Maybe he had a bandage over his eyes. Sometimes the blind uh, did that in Jesus' day. Either way, they knew he was blind, and they said, Master, who messed up? Who sinned that this guy's blind? He or his parents? And you can just picture this kind of attitude of judgment, this attitude of, 
you know, who, who, who did this to make this guy deserve this? Is he, is he some kind of wicked, evil person, or, or are his parents wicked and evil? Tell us now, uh, that we can kind of get a, a, an idea to bring judgment upon him. It was commonly understood in this culture that if one had an infirmity, it was a result of or a judgment upon sin. Now, in the case of the man that was impotent, okay, that was lame for, what was it, 38 years, okay, um, at the pools of um, Bethsaida, Bethsaida, uh, Bethesda, I had to get that right. Um, Jesus, at the end, tells him, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. Now, we, don't, we aren't told anything more than that about that imp- impotent man. It may have just been that he was in a drunken stupor and fell down some stairs and basically messed up his legs to the point where he couldn't walk. We don't know, okay, uh, how or why that came upon him. But look with me at this passage in Ezekiel 18.1 there in your notes. The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, saith the Lord God, ye shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now Mark dealt with this passage and this kind of idea when he talked about corporate solidarity, okay, and the uh, way that society was viewed in Bible times. And the passage, for instance, in Exodus, where it says God is going to visit the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. You remember that in Exodus? The difference between that in Exodus and this passage here from Ezekiel is that Exodus is talking about the nation. It's talking about basically a national sin and God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, which is exactly what happened when they were taken into captivity in Babylon for not obeying the land Sabbath, allowing the land to rest. God brought judgment upon that, and it not only affected the fathers, but it affected the children, okay, those that came after. But that was a national thing. Individually, it's different. Individually, as it is here in Ezekiel, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. You know, it's going to be individual responsibility for sin. Individual responsibility as far as your relationship with God and the need for individual repentance and restoration and faith. But here, uh, the disciples, they're saying, you know, who, who was it that caused this man to be blind? In their mind, there's no kind of third option other than this guy is wicked or his parents are wicked. That's the only reason that he would ever be born blind. And we have seen similar things throughout other cultures, other societies, Um, whereas if somebody had some kind of infirmity or some kind of weakness, they would be sacrificed or they would be thrown in prison or there'd be some kind of, you know, um, they'd be exiled from their family because there must have been some kind of curse upon them uh, to have this done. But here, look at what Jesus says in verse number three. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. So I kind of broke it down in this, in this uh, couple of sentences here, these two sentences. Sometimes we question why we or someone we know has such a trial or tragedy in their life. I almost died a number of different times as a child. I was born two months premature. Um, my, when, my, when I was born, the doctors told my mom, your baby is dying, and basically get ready to, for the, um, you know, the next step of what's going to happen after your child is dead. 
Um, did my parents sin to cause that to happen to me? Did I sin? You know, and so Jesus says here, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. So sometimes we question why this happens. If it is not chastisement in the life of a believer, okay, and Mark talked about this, the three levels of chastisement, okay, um, or three levels of God, you know, bringing a sinner or bringing a, a, a Christian, a believer, back to himself. There's conviction, then there's chastisement. I think I'm getting this right, and then there's casket, <laughs> okay? And so God will chastise a believer. But if somebody's not a believer, what, what, is, what is going on there? Now, there are consequences to sin, okay? Like I mentioned, if that impotent man, if he got in a drunken stupor and ended up breaking his leg and it not being set right, and now he's lame for the rest of his life, that's a consequence of his sin, and we have consequences of our sin. Sometimes people get saved later in life, and they still have to deal with the consequences of the sin that they had been involved with for years. I had a teacher in Bible school that got saved around the same age that Mark did, I think, in his late 20s, and uh, he had been involved in all kinds of drugs and drinking, and, and his body was still dealing with the physical consequences of the sins that he was involved in when he was younger, before he had gotten saved. And so there is practical, obvious consequences to sin. But if there's not um, some kind of chastisement in the life of a believer, if there is not the um, practical consequences to sin, like for instance, this man had been blind from his birth, okay? Say that he wasn't blind from his birth. What if he was, you know, a man that was full of wrath, and he was, you know, brawling and fighting with people and perhaps assaulting people, perhaps trying to kill people. Say this guy was a wicked, you know, murderer and he was attempting to murder somebody else and he got stabbed in his eye or something that caused him to lose his sight, okay? That's a consequence of his sin. And there's tons and tons of consequences of sin in this world today. But if it's not chastisement in the life of a believer and it's not... Uh, consequences of a sin that you're involved with, then a third option is it's for the glory of God. God allowed it to happen for one reason or another to bring himself glory. It may not be through healing, okay? Um, it may be that through dealing with that infirmity, seeing God's grace strong in your life, like it was with Paul, was, was, was the, the thorn in Paul's flesh was that necessarily chastisement? I mean, it was there to keep him humble uh, that he, so that he wouldn't be, uh, Paul says, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but lift himself up with pride because of the multitude of revelations that God had given unto him. But um, the third option is just plain old the fact that God's going to have glory through this. And um, the Bible says we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. And so God works things in our life uh, toward good. Um, and so when things, when, when things happen, okay, I don't believe that, that, that nothing happens. I don't know if I say this right. I don't believe that anything happens without a reason. Okay? Uh, sometimes that reason is, uh, oh, what was that? I saw a really good billboard. Oh, something about how... Uh, Sometimes bad things happen. Why, why do bad things happen in your life? It's 
sometimes it's because you're stupid and make bad decisions or something. I don't know. But, um, you know, sometimes the reason is our own uh, because I believe God has given us a free will and we can disobey him. We can walk away from him. We can get involved with sin and deal with the consequences of that sin. And as a believer, we will deal with chastisement, God trying to lovingly bring us back unto himself. Um, anyway, there was this kind of presupposition that this guy, this blind guy, he did something wrong. And Jesus says, no, it wasn't him, it wasn't his parents, but that the glory of God might be, uh, works of God might be made manifest in him. Okay, and the Lord may be doing that in your life. If we're dealing with difficulty and strife or trials of any kind, it's probably one of those three. Okay, God's going to try and get your attention as a believer to get you closer to him. Maybe you're dealing with the consequences of something stupid that you did. Okay, or... Uh, God is doing something in your life to get the glory and to show his glory through you. And so we can take encouragement with that. Sometimes it's nice to know that we can biblically categorize what's going on in our life and then we can figure out what we need to do. Do I need to get right with God about something? Do I need to just lean on his grace because this thing is there for God to have the glory? Um, and we can kind of go along with that idea. Any questions or comments on that? aspect that we've been looking at. Okay, so verse number four, Jesus says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now back then, Bible times, it was common to work. It was an agricultural society, and it was very common that you'd work during daylight hours. You know, you got up before sunrise, so you could work at sunrise, and then by the time the sun went down, you had to kind of finish working because electricity wasn't a thing yet, <laughs> you know? I mean, there was torches you could have, but you only do so much with a torch, especially if you're in an agricultural society and you're in a farm and you're holding up this fire in the middle of a field of wheat, you know? Not the smartest idea. Um, so anyway, in the understanding that that culture had, the night was almost there. The day is when we need to work. And then Jesus clarifies that, gives us the understanding of that symbolism in verse 5 when he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so this is speaking of the time that Jesus was yet on earth, performing his earthly ministry. I must do the works of him that sent me while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. Jesus is not with us in the same way right now as he was during his earthly ministry. Or working with a physical body, and performing his miracles, being physically with us. Now we know that the Spirit of Christ dwells within us, and that whenever two or three are gathered, there is he in the midst of them, and that he will physically, bodily return to this earth at his second coming and set up his physical um, kingdom to literally rule and reign from David's throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And, um, but here, he's speaking of, I have, to, I have to do what the Father sent me while I can, while I am here, before I die for your sin and my, or for, for, for your sin and my sin, not Jesus's, he never said. Um, and so he basically has an urgency to do what the Father uh, has for him to do. Verse 6, when he had thus spoken, okay, talking about he's near this guy that was born blind. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said unto him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And 
he went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. So this blind man, as far as we know from this passage, we don't have a record of the blind man saying, you know, uh, son, of, son of David, have mercy upon me. I think that's what blind Bartimaeus cried out. We don't have a record of this man in John chapter 9 crying such a thing. Maybe he did, we don't know. It's not recorded for us. All we know is that Jesus goes up to him and he makes clay of the spittle and the ground. And we can kind of understand that here because there's more clay here than I ever had in Ohio on the ground. You know, you dig through and you find some clay. Anyway, and uh, he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, this is interesting. Siloam, as far as I understand it, is Aramaic. It was kind of the common understanding of what the name of this pool was. That's why it says, which is by interpretation, sent. You go to Israel, the pool of Siloam is called the pool of Shiloach. Okay, and Siloam is the Aramaic version of Shiloach. Now, we learned in Hebrew class that uh, the word for he sent is Shalach. Okay, right under verse 7 there, Shalach. Uh, means he sent. Shiloach means sending or sent. That's the Hebrew name of this place. That's why John tells us, and he tells his audience, which was a worldwide audience, that by the way, this means sent. And uh, for extra reference, from this same word, we get the Hebrew word shlichim. I'm try and say that one five times fast. And shlichim is the Hebrew word for the apostles. Okay. Um, and here is an artist rendition of the Pool of Siloam on the left. And then there's Lois and I sitting in the Pool of Siloam in Israel. And so you can see kind of a size reference there. We're just on like maybe 1 15th, 1 20th of the edge of that pool. Some thought that it was a mikvah. Okay, remember a mikvah being the Jewish ritual bath? And it was said that if this is in fact a mikvah, for people to go to to have ritual cleansing uh, before being involved in different kinds of ceremonies regarding the temple and service there and so on, that if that's true, if this is a mikvah, it is the largest ever found, ever. Um, but it's kind of up in the air whether this is a mikvah or it's just a swimming pool. <laughs> okay, so some people think it's a swimming pool. Uh, it's kind of hard to tell at this point, but if it is in fact a mikvah, it's the largest ever found. Um, okay, so he tells him to go and wash. He goes and washes in that pool. Plug for our Israel trip. If you come to Israel with us, we will go to this location and you will be able to see it, okay? Um, it's, it's a really neat kind of place. Um, and it wasn't found until quite recently, uh, relatively speaking. Um, up until it was found, people thought that it was kind of like a myth or something, you know? The Bible's not true. There is no pool of Siloam. Oh, there it is, <laughs> you know? Um, okay, so verse 8. After this man comes seeing, okay, he does what Jesus told him to do, and now he can see. This is amazing. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, eh, He's like him. But he said, I am he. Okay? They're like, Is this the guy that was born blind? And others are like, Well, it looks kind of like him, but it's not him. And it says, the guy says himself, I am he. Verse number 9. Then in verse number 10, Therefore they said unto him, How were thine eyes opened? You know, obviously there's this curiosity. How did this happen? 
They realized that a miracle had taken place. They knew this guy from years back, and they knew that he was blind. They knew that he was born that way. Okay, flip your page over there. Verse number 11, he answered and said, and this is, this is, this is his response, how he was able to see. A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. It's a very simple, straightforward answer. He had a limited understanding of who Jesus was, but this is all he knew. A man, made, a man named Jesus made clay and put it on my eyes, told me to go wash. I washed and now I can see. That's all I know. Then they said unto him, where is he? He said, I don't know. I don't know where he is. Uh, after, after all, I couldn't see until I came up from washing in the pool of Siloam. I don't know where Jesus is. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. Okay, so this was just the common everyday Israelites that were there. The neighbors, the people that knew him, the people that had grown up with him. And they're trying to find out and ascertain how did this guy gain the ability to see? He was blind from his birth. They ask him uh, who Jesus is, where he is, you know, how it all happened. And he says, I don't know. I don't know where Jesus is. All I know is I, I was blind before. Now I can see. So then they said, okay, let's, let's take him. Let's take him to the Pharisees and, 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 and get to the bottom of this matter. You know, how all this, how all this happened. Um, by the way, Dun, dun, dun. Guess what day of the week it is? The Sabbath. Okay. Um, okay. So they brought him to the Pharisees, and verse 14, and it was the Sabbath day, dun, 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 when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And as we've seen before, Jesus is doing this on purpose. He likes to rattle the cages of those that are so full of religiosity and the um, traditions of men that uh, he likes to get their attention. And um, he, doesn't, he doesn't kind of um, try and avoid confrontation. Okay? Then, again, the Pharisees also asked him, okay, so this is the blind man being brought before the Pharisees. They asked him how he'd received his sight. He said unto them, he put clay in my eyes, I washed and do see. You kind of get an idea that this guy, he's the, the man that was blind, he's kind of getting used to repeating himself and he's kind of getting tired of it. <laughs> You know, he's being uh, put through all these questions. Therefore, said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. So the Pharisees, referring to Jesus, says this man is not of God uh, because he doesn't keep the Sabbath day. And others said, how can, how can anybody do such miracles and not have God be with him? Kind of like Nicodemus said in John 3. And then in verse 17, they say unto the blind man, What sayest thou of him that he opened thine eyes? He said, He is a prophet. Okay, again, this is his limited understanding of who Jesus was. But they're trying to get to the bottom of it. Who do you say that this guy is? And then in verse number 18, the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind. And the Jews there is speaking of the Pharisees specifically. Okay, the Judean uh, religious rulers. Okay. Uh, they did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight. This is not those that were his neighbors. This is not those that had grown up with him. This is not the crowd that brought him to the Pharisees. This is the Pharisees themselves that did not know this guy before this moment. And they're like, we don't believe you. You, you were never blind. You could always see. Uh, they did not believe concerning him that he had been blind, verse 18, and received his sight. 
until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. Now, they didn't just, you know, pick up a cell phone and, 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 they're, and they're like, what is your parents' number? We're going to get them down here. I don't know how old this guy was, but his parents were still alive, okay? And in Bible times, in, in, in New Testament era, uh, life expectancy was probably not so great uh, compared to what it is now anyway. So I'm guessing that this guy was probably maybe in his 20s or 30s, maybe, 40 at the oldest, maybe, 40 or 50 uh, at the oldest. So anyway, uh, they're like, okay, let's, let, let's, let's get his parents on the line and find out, <laughs> you know, what's going on here. And so they bring his parents in. In verse number 19, they ask them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then doth he now see? They don't get it. They want to look at every single possible explanation and avenue other than Jesus healed this man. And a lot of times, that's what the lost people in this world try and do. They try and look at every other possible example other than what the scripture teaches. And that's exactly what's happening here. And his parents, his parents answered them, and I kind of like this. Uh, his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. And you can kind of, there's kind of this like almost comical tension here, you know, building. And then it, it, it kind of built to this moment where they said, He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. It's kind of like, if you really want to know, ask him, he's old enough to tell you. And um, it's almost like, you know, some of these uh, reality TV shows where there's like an argument between people and it's just kind of building kind of to a ridiculous level because they don't want to accept that this man truly was blind and that Jesus healed him. And there's so much to the point where they called his parents in. They're asking him, was he really blind? We don't want to, you know, they don't want to believe. They don't want to believe this. We see skepticism on part of the Pharisees and fear on the part of the parents. And we'll see in the next verse why. Okay, why his parents didn't want to say, yes, Jesus healed him, and Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus is, you know, not, not that they knew all of that, but they wanted to kind of keep quiet. They wanted to purposely keep quiet, because look at the next verse. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. Now, his parents were Jewish. They didn't fear their own people but they feared the Judean religious ruler and the, and, and, and the Judean religious authorities, which is what the word Jews is speaking of here. They're all Jewish. Again, I've said that a million times. They're all Jewish, but here they are fearing the religious rulership of Judea. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, there's already something going on or going around about Jesus, saying if any man confesses that he's the Messiah, Look at the end of verse 22. He should be put out of the synagogue. This is in John, in the first century, during Jesus' earthly ministry, and there is already a rule put in place that if a Jewish person believed that Jesus was the Messiah, you're not going to be a part of our synagogue anymore, and you'll kind of be ostracized and shunned and excommunicated from that Jewish religious community. And so his parents... We don't want to lose our place in the synagogue. We don't want to be ostracized from the community. We don't want our son to be ostracized. But, um, you know, to get to the bottom of things, talk to him. He's of age. They're kind of fearing the religious leadership. On top of the fact that they're being really kind of logical 
uh, in their reasoning. You know, he's old enough. Talk to him. Why do you have us called in here? Therefore, verse 23, said his parents, he is of age. Ask him. Then again, verse 24, they called the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. You know, they're kind of trying to, uh, what do they call that? In, in, in the court where you're kind of uh, not badgering the witness, but you're, you're trying to put words in the witness's mouth, you know? Leading the witness, okay? They're leading the witness. <laughs> they're like, come on, give God the praise. Let's, let, let, let's give God the glory here. We know that this guy's a sinner, right? Right? He's a sinner. And they're just trying and trying and trying to get this man to lambast Jesus and to say that Jesus is not uh, a, a, anybody that they'd want to be involved with and trying to claim that Jesus was a sinner. But look at what this, look, look what this blind man says. He has, he has uh, courage here in the face of these religious rulers. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know that whereas I was blind and now I see. Look at the facts. Look at my changed life. Look at what happened where I could not see before ever for any day in my entire life and now I can. And you are amongst the first things that I am seeing in my entire life and it's not a pretty sight because you're trying to get me to say that somebody is a sinner that gave me my sight. And so this is, I, I, I love this, this whole chapter because Jesus and his interaction, not only with the Pharisees, but this blind man, is just so precious. So um, he says, One thing I know that I was blind, and now I see. Verse 26, they said unto him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? And they're just not letting it go. He answered them, I have told you already, and you did not hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Or why would you hear it again? Will you also be his disciples? And so this guy, this blind guy, he's kind of getting some gumption, you know, some chutzpah, and he's kind of just letting him have it right back at him. You know, why are you asking me all these questions? Are you going to be his disciple? The, the, the blind man, he knows, he knows that they're not going to be his disciples, but he's kind of just, he's tired of all these arguments. I've told you already. Why do you want to know all these questions? Are you going to follow him? And then verse 28, then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we, we are Moses' disciples. You know, they kind of pridefully and arrogantly state that we're not like you. We're not following some guy that's a sinner. And they do not want to accept that Jesus did this miracle. Because if they truly accept that Jesus did this miracle, well, maybe he is the Christ. Maybe he is the prophesied one. Maybe he has the power of God upon him, like Nicodemus said but they don't want to accept that. And so often, those that have something to lose, that keeps them from trusting Christ. And these religious rulers, they had authority that they were going to lose. They had power that they were going to lose. They had position that they were going to lose. They had money that they were going to lose. If they said, okay, the Messiah is here, let's listen to him. And they would be giving up their authority, their position, their power, their money, because they had control over the people. If they gave control over to Jesus, if they you know, acquiesced to his leadership and his rulership and his position of who he was, they would be forfeiting everything that they had. And they were fighting to hold on to those things. Um, don't do that today if you're listening, um, either here or on the internet. If you're holding on to something, 
um, instead of letting God take control. That's exactly what they were doing. So, um, interesting. Jewish belief today, okay, this, this is going to be kind of a little bit of a, of a rabbit trail. Jewish belief today about the Torah, okay, and this is all stemming from the verse, you are his disciple, but we, we are Moses' disciples, okay? Jewish belief today in the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, referred to as the Torah or the law, also a term that's used as the Pentateuch. This is viewed, popular Jewish belief today, this is viewed as being in opposition to Jesus. As we see here in this verse, Jesus, Moses, okay? They're in opposition to each other according to the Pharisees. Are they truly in opposition to each other? No, not at all. And that's what we're going to find out here. Let's look at Romans. Well, here, just for time's sake, I'll kind of just refer to it. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, Do we make void the law through faith? God forbid. We establish the law. And their law is, uh, it's namas in the Greek, but the Hebrew equivalent is the Torah. Do we, do we throw out the Torah um, because we have faith? He says, God forbid, we establish the Torah. Now there it doesn't mean that we're now going to keep the law like superhuman people because we have faith. But because we have faith, just like Abraham had faith, we give the law its true meaning. We hold the law in its proper perspective, in its proper place. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law is to show us that we are sinners. The law is good. The law is righteous. But the flesh is weak. We cannot keep the law. We are sinful people. The purpose of the law is to show us that we are sinners, to bring us to the knowledge of the Messiah. The other side of the coin is that Jesus himself fulfilled the law perfectly. As it says in Matthew 5.17, this next verse here that I have referenced, Jesus says, I think not I'm come to destroy the law. I am not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Now, that word there, fulfill, and I have a dear friend who believes differently about this word. But I looked it up. There are those in certain movements within Messianic Judaism, okay, that believe that we are still under the law, that believe that we are still obliged to keep the law in every point. And he told me that there is this word fulfill, plerao is the, is, is the word, where Jesus says, think not I am come to destroy, I am not come to destroy, but to plerao, to fulfill. He said, you know what that word means? Plerao, to fulfill, it means to show by example. I am not come to destroy, but I am to show by example, to lead by example, to show you how to keep the law. That is not at all, not at all what this word means. Do you know what it means? To fulfill. <laughs> to, to, to end. To complete, exactly. To fulfill, to end, to complete. Jesus says, I am not come to destroy the law, but I am come to fulfill it, to complete it, to bring it to an end. Not in a way that destroys it, but to a way that keeps, that, that, that Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. He kept it perfectly. And also, by faith in Jesus, by having faith in the Messiah, as Paul said in Romans 3, we establish the law. Okay? We can, we can hold the law up and not be ashamed of it at all in its true purpose, which is not to give us righteousness, which is not to give us merit before God, which is not to help us to earn our salvation, but it is to point us to the fact that we are sinners, 
that the whole world, the Bible says, might become guilty before God. That's the purpose of the law. And so by faith, by having faith in the Messiah, by applying the law to our lives in its proper place, which is to show us that we're sinners, to show us that we need Christ and to accept him by faith, thereby we hold up the law in its true purpose, its true position. Are we as believers obliged to keep the law? No. Okay, it is nailed to the cross. And Mark has gone through this extensively, um, that the laws that we are to now keep are the ones that are reiterated by Jesus and Paul as, as um, you know, um, the law of Christ, the royal law. And so we are not obliged in any way, shape, or form to keep the Mosaic law. Okay, Jesus died for that because we could not keep it. Um, okay. Um, Jewish belief today regarding the Talmud. Now this is interesting, and I, I, I wanted to mention the Talmud. I wanted to bring this out, the Jewish traditions, uh, the oral law as it's called, falsely because there is no oral law. I wanted to bring this about because of the Pharisees telling this blind man that you're his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. Were they truly Moses' disciples? No. Okay, what they followed primarily and what Judaism today follows primarily is not even the Torah, but man's opinions and interpretations of the Torah called the Talmud, the oral law. There's two Talmuds. There's the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. One was written in the 4th century AD, meaning the 300s, okay, uh, the Jerusalem Talmud. The other was written in the early 6th century A.D., the Babylonian Talmud. So both of these, although the oral transmission of these things existed in the time of Jesus, that's how he's able to say you make void the word of God by your tradition, and there's so many things that pop up as Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees that relate to what is taught in the Talmud, but it was not written down. It was not you know, put, in, put down into words until long after the New Testament was penned. Okay? So... Those within Judaism that would reject the New Testament simply because it came after the Tanakh, it came after uh, the prophets, it came after the Old Testament, uh, what they primarily hold up and believe was written long after the New Testament, centuries after. And even the Old Testament as we know it, okay, the earlier scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, that was not canonized and codified and officially stamped as this is what we believe is the scriptures until after the New Testament was finished. How amazing is that? I think it was like 150 AD that the Old Testament was finally, I mean, it was, it, it was believed to be those 39 books of our Old Testament, but it wasn't officially canonized and sanctioned and stamp of approval, this is the revelation of God, until after the New Testament was finished. Those things within the later scriptures and the earlier scriptures are much closer than we realize and a lot closer than the majority of Jewish people realize. Uh, I've talked to Jewish people before that believe that thousands of years transpired between the last book of the Old Testament being written and the first, Old, the first New Testament book being penned. It's about 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. And guess what? Within the Old Testament itself, there has been gaps of longer than 400 years between individual books within the Old Testament. Anyway, um, okay, I have some quotes for you from Chabad.org, and this is the ultra-Orthodox Jewish crowd, okay, the Hasidic Jews. 
This is quotes about the Talmud. And um, I'm guessing we're probably only going to get halfway through John 9. Maybe, I don't know. Anyway, this is from Chabad.org about the Talmud. Just before giving the Torah on Mount Sinai, God tells Moses that he will give him the stone tablets, the Torah, and the commandments. Now, that's their version. And what's interesting is portions of these verses are selectively left off of these quotes. Because the end of these verses, or different portions surrounding these verses, to put them in context, completely blow out of the water the fact that they're trying to say that there was an oral law and a written law. There was no oral law. Not at all. He says, by adding the word commandments in addition to the Torah, okay, he says, I will give him the stone tablets, the Torah, and the commandments. By adding the word commandments in addition to the Torah, God implies that there are commandments that are not included in the Torah. Nope, nope, nope. Not true. This, among others, is a clear implication of the existence of the oral Torah. Now, let's see, do I have that verse? Okay, let's turn there, or I'll turn there real quick for time's sake. Uh... Exodus 24 and verse 12. I just want to show you this as an example. And this is throughout a lot of stuff uh, within the uh, Jewish religious crowd. Is that they will take passages, actually passages from the Bible, and they will selectively quote, they will twist them, they will contort them in order to meet their needs. Exodus chapter 12, verse 24. Or I'm sorry. I got that reversed. Exodus chapter 24 and verse 12. Chapter 12 is the Passover. Okay. Exodus 24, verse 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me in the mount and be there. And I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written. They leave that part out. <laughs> you know? That's kind of important if you're trying to make the case that this passage says that there is written and then there is oral. But after that phrase, God says, this is what I have written. And they're trying to say that even the last part, the commandments, is the part that was oral. If there was any part that was written, and it, it, it's all written, okay? The Torah, uh, the tables, the commandments, it's all written. But especially the commandments. And the commandments is trying to be the part where they say, well, because the word commandments is there, that means that there was also an additional oral law. It's clearly implied. Um, that thou mayest teach them. I have written them that, you, that thou mayest teach them. They're written down. There is no oral Torah. Um, okay. Then, he says this on the, on the other half of the page there. Before Moses received the second set of tables, tablets, the Lord said to Moses, write down these words for yourself, since it is through these words, and they give the implication or understanding that this means by word of mouth, that I have formed a covenant with you and Israel. Now, I'm in Exodus 24. I'm going to flip over to Exodus 34 and read you this verse that they are completely trying to uh, twist to meet their own ends. Uh, okay. And before I read it, I'm going to give his interpretation of this passage. Um, okay. So it, it says after that, the Talmud explains, okay, the Talmud explains that this verse implies that there is a prohibition of saying the written word by heart and of writing down the oral Torah. They're taking whatever the Talmud says, which is a commentary on the Tanakh. It's a commentary on the Torah. They're taking the words of those ancient rabbis, okay, the sages of Judaism, 
And they're taking those words as gospel truth. The Talmud says that there's an oral law, uh, that this verse implies that there is an oral law. So there, there has to be an oral law. Forget about the fact that this verse doesn't say that at all. Um, Rabbi Yehuda Bar Nachmani, the public orator of Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, taught as follows. It is written, write down these words for yourself, implying that the Torah is to be put into writing. And it is also written, since through these words, literally by word of mouth, implying that it is not to be written down. What are we to make of this? It means regarding the written words that you are not at liberty to say them by heart, which is kind of strange. And the words transmitted orally, you are not at liberty to recite from a written text. Atana, the school of Rabbi Ishmael, taught, it is written, write down these words, these you may write, i.e. the written Torah, but you may not write halakha, the oral Torah. Now, let's look at actually what the verse actually says. Exodus 34, 27. And the, and the Lord said unto Moses, write thou these words. For after the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. Um, that phrase, after the tenor of these words, okay, is the phrase uh, by mouth. Okay, I have told you these things. But let's look at the verse as a whole. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words, or by mouth, I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. If anything, God is telling Moses, Write down what I have told you by mouth. Not that it's forbidden to recite something that's written, and it's not forbidden to write down something that is told orally. That's nowhere in this text. Not at all. This is the blind leading the blind. It is like taking the word of a heretical church father without examining God's word. And this is on their website today as what they believe and what they teach. The Talmud, the traditions of men, is so highly upheld and it's all believed under a false pretense that God gave both the written Torah and some kind of oral instruction. But God tells us, I believe it's in the book of Joshua, that all that God told Moses, he wrote down. All of it. So, I don't know what they do with that verse. Anyway, further explanation of, 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 of popular Jewish thought today regarding believing in Moses, okay? And I, I, I went on that kind of rabbit trail about the Talmud to, to, to let you know that they are not believing in Moses. They are not believing in what Moses wrote. They're believing in what some guy wrote about some guy wrote about Moses. They're not believing in Moses. They're not believing in what Moses said and what Moses taught. For if they did, they would come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, salvation through the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants, okay? This is a belief within Judaism. We just examined in the last chapter, chapter 8, where being Abraham's seed was thought to make one righteous. We don't need to be made free, Jesus. We're Abraham's seed. Don't you know whose children we are? You know, they're, they're righteous because they're Abraham's seed. That's their belief. Um, but um, Jesus says, no, that doesn't make you righteous. Although that you are physically Abraham's seed, spiritually, like any unsaved person that has not come to Jesus by faith, we are children of the devil until we believe, receive, to as many as he received, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Uh, John 1.12. Secondly, the Mosaic Covenant. It is thought that through the keeping of the Mosaic Covenant, the Torah, the law, 
that one can attain unto righteousness. Paul said, verily, if righteousness could have come by the, by the law, if there was a commandment that could have given life, verily, salvation should have come from the law. But that's not possible because we cannot keep it. We cannot keep it perfectly. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Um, okay, that's their belief. Now, position that against, in contrast, the scriptural reality. Okay, so they're believing the Talmud. They're believing in uh, salvation through the Mosaic and Abrahamic covenants. But the scripture teaches something different. What does the scripture teach? Well, firstly, the Torah. Within the books of Moses, okay, those books that they are trusting in to bring them life, to bring them righteousness, to bring them salvation, within those books of Moses, 160 times the phrase, put to death, occurs. Okay, um, the law brings death. The law brings judgment. The law brings condemnation. That's what it's for. Um, we'll skip over those verses for time's sake. Showing that the purpose of the law is not to give us salvation, but to bring us to Christ, to bring us to the end of ourselves and a reliance upon God and his plan of salvation to give us true righteousness. That is not in and of ourselves. Moses condemns those that trust in him. Isn't this interesting? They're saying to this blind man, you're his, you're his disciple. You're Jesus' disciple. But we, we are Moses' disciples. Moses condemns those that trust in him. John 5, verse 45 and 46. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For if ye had believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Now, Jesus wasn't there presently in this conversation between the blind man and the Pharisees. But if he was, I can tell you that it's pretty certain he would have said something along those lines. Uh, if you would have really believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. John 7, 19, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go you about to kill me? Okay, um, it's, it's neat to see the contrast between what Jesus says and what the Pharisees say. In Acts 13, 39, and by him, Jesus, all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Okay, and this verse came, popped in my mind. I want to say it while I get a chance to. In Galatians, it says, uh, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made, be, are you now made perfect uh, by the flesh, by the law? God forbid. You know, if we're saved by faith uh, through grace, we are kept by faith through grace. You know, God's power will keep us. Um, anyway, so we are not obliged to keep the Mosaic Law. The one in Galatians? Let me, let me actually turn there, because I want to quote it correctly to you. I don't want to misquote it. Sure, no, no. It's in Galatians, I believe it's chapter 1. Um, but in Galatians, there are those uh, within the church at Galatia that are kind of, um, oh, what's the word? Regressing to, to trusting in the law and keeping of the law rather than uh, trusting in Christ by faith alone. Okay. Um, okay. Galatians 3. Verse 1 says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you, this only what I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? 
How did you receive God's Spirit? By faith or by keeping the law? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 1 through 3. Okay. You know what? I think we might actually be able to finish this. I think we will, without going crazy and without me speaking like an auctioneer, uh, too much more than I already am. Okay, so uh, we're speaking of scriptural reality about the Torah. The Torah, the law, it condemns us. Uh, the Talmud, okay, this is interesting. Um, let's just turn to that Matthew 15 passage. Keep your finger in John if you're there, or if you're just reading off the sheet, that's fine. But turn to Matthew chapter 15. We'll look at the Mark passage uh, later or on your own. For time's sake, we'll just look at the Matthew passage here now. In Matthew chapter 15. Now the Talmud is made up of the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Mishnah is the primary uh, portion of the Talmud. Okay? That is the commentary on the Torah. The Gemara is the commentary on the Mishnah. And that's what makes up the Talmud. Okay, these two separate parts, the Mishnah and the Gemara. But what is taught within them, orally, okay, was believed at the time of Jesus. A lot of it was. Uh, a lot of concepts and so on. Matthew chapter number 15. I've got to turn there. And let's look at verses 1 through 6 of Matthew chapter 15. Then came, Jesus, then came to Jesus the scribes and Pharisees which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Okay, this is what is spoken of within the Talmud. Okay, the traditions, the, the, the interpretations, the opinions of the sages on how we are supposed to carry out these passages in the Torah. They extrapolate upon them, and that is what we are to be bound by and to keep. Why do your disciples break the trans transgression of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. I just did Passover yesterday, uh, three of them, at the um, Cary Christian School. And we'd go through that part where you wash your hands. You know, when you say the blessing, Blessed art thou, Lord our God, which sanctified us with thy commandments and commanded us to wash our hands. That is not in the Bible. There is no commandment in the Torah, in the Tanakh, to ever wash your hands. There is portions where they say, Let this man wash his hands that was involved in this kind of situation. But there is no, thou shalt wash thine hands before eating. Thou shalt recite this blessing before eating. That is within the Talmud. That's the traditions of the elders. He said unto them, verse 3, Why do you transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and thy mother. He that, he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, Whosoever shall say to his father or mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me and honor not his father or mother, he shall be free. Thus ye have made the commandment of God none effect by your tradition. The way that they looked at honoring your father and your mother was faulty, and there were so many other ones. And this, is just, this isn't just some kind of idea where we're not going to do what the Torah says because we want to do it our own way. It is more specific than that. There is a specific teaching that was taught in the traditions of the elders within Judaism, within the, within the rabbi circles and so on in those days, on how we are to carry out and to practice and to interpret the Torah. See, the problem is, they, they, they may have had good intentions, okay? They did not want to break the Torah. They did not want to break God's law. They wanted to keep it as best they could. And so, 
they built all these fences around those commandments and they extrapolated upon those commandments on how you're supposed to carry those out after all. How am I supposed to give a sacrifice? How am I supposed to celebrate Sukkot? How am I supposed to, you know, all of these different things. And so the rabbis of old, the teachers of old, the sages throughout the ages, okay, I didn't mean to rhyme there, but that happened, um, even beyond the time of Jesus, up until like the sixth century, there was rabbis giving their opinions and interpretations on what we read in the Talmud. And um, all of those things, although they may have had good intentions at the onset of keeping the Torah, they actually ended up coming up with things out of their own minds on how they thought the Torah should be practiced. And they went as far as going to certain extents that would actually break the Torah itself, um, break the commandments found in the law by their interpretations and their opinions and the way that they set out to practice those things. Oh, by the way, I want to give you guys something to pass around. This is show and tell. Okay, are you a good catch, brother? Okay. Okay, good catch. All right, so that is from the Pool of Siloam. So you can actually, you know, touch a piece of Israel here tonight. Okay? Um, all right, so. Um, okay. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 18, I have it there in your notes. Says, for as much as you know that you were not received, uh, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, and so often in Scripture, so often in Scripture, the the traditions is juxtaposed to the true Word of God, and the traditions being incorrect, the traditions being against the Word of God, the traditions being vain, and empty, and incorrect. And false. What are some of the traditions in the Talmud? I have some examples for you. Now, this I am going to read like an auctioneer, okay? The fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Thou shalt do no servile work therein, thy manservant, thy maidservant, the stranger that's within thy gates, so on and so forth. Thou shalt not work on the Sabbath day. That's all we have, okay? I'm going to read to you 39 things that are from the Talmud from the phrase, thou shalt not work. These are prohibitions in the Talmud about what you shall not do on the Sabbath. Planting, plowing, reaping, gathering, threshing slash extraction, winnowing, sorting slash purification, grinding, sifting, kneading slash amalgamation, cooking slash baking, shearing, scouring slash laundering, beating slash combing wool. I'm just reading these like topically. But there are pages and pages and pages and chapters and chapters within the Talmud devoted to how you are supposed to not do this specific aspect on the Sabbath. Um, dyeing, spinning, warping, making two loops, weaving, separating two threads, tying, untying, sewing, tearing, trapping, slaughtering, flaying slash skinning, curing slash preserving, smoothing, scoring, measured cutting, writing, erasing, building, demolition, extinguishing a fire, igniting a fire, applying the finishing touch, and transferring between domains. Now we know later in scripture there was a provision specifically given for carrying, okay, carrying a burden on the Sabbath day. There was also within the Talmud a prohibition for taking, I think, 50 paces or something like that from your, from your home domain, okay. And that's not within the scripture that I know of, but it was specifically given that, okay, well, it's 50 paces. And it's 50 paces from your house or your home domain. So what people would do in the time of Jesus, they would take a handful of dirt, they would walk 50 paces, and the handful of dirt would be from their yard or from their home. They'd walk 50 paces, throw a little bit of dirt down, walk 50 more paces. So they are technically not taking 50 paces beyond their domain. 
And that completely misses the point of what God was trying to get across in remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, you know? Anyway, that's just an example. Okay, another scriptural reality, salvation through the Messiah, not Abraham. Uh, here's some passages that we can look at uh, when you get a chance. Luke 16, uh, the rich man and Lazarus there in Abraham's bosom. Uh, salvation by having Abraham as his father did not work for the rich man that ended up in hell. Verse, uh, or point number two, not through Moses. Moses wrote of the Messiah in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. Uh, we're told by Abraham, in fact, that Moses wrote of the Messiah. Luke 24, 27, beginning at Moses, this is Jesus on the road to Emmaus with those two men. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them and all the scriptures, things concerning himself. Moses and Jesus are not mutually exclusive. Jesus is not in contradiction to Moses, and Moses is in not contradiction to Jesus. Moses taught of Jesus. Luke 24, 44, he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all the things might be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. John 1.45, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then I have a reference here to Acts 26, Paul preaching to King Agrippa, referencing the law of Moses and its relation to Jesus as the Messiah being shown through that law. Jeremiah 31, salvation is through Jesus. Not Abraham, not Moses, but through Jesus, through the Messiah. Um, in Jeremiah 31 talks about the new covenant which will ultimately be fulfilled at the second coming when the nation of Israel those that are left accept Jesus as their Messiah they look on him whom they have pierced and they mourn for him and they accept him they trust him as their Messiah as their Savior um, but there in Jeremiah 31 it says that the new covenant would bring forgiveness of sin a personal relationship with God and God's word written down in your heart um, anyway that's all in relation to Jesus Isaiah 53 Forgiveness of sins made possible through the substitutionary death of the Messiah. For the transgression of my people was he stricken, Isaiah says. In Daniel, it says the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. He would die for the sins of the world. He is who we have salvation through. Conclusion. We made it. Boy, we're going to be on time even. Okay. So, John chapter 9. Back at John chapter 9 again. Verse 29. Um, and this is, again, this is the uh, Pharisees speaking. We know that God spake unto Moses. Remember how they just previously said, you're Jesus' disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, why herein is a marvelous thing that you know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened my eyes. You've never heard of this guy. You don't know where he's from. That's amazing to me because he performed a miracle. An amazing miracle. Greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my life, I can see. Whereas I could never see before, a single day in my life, I was born this way. Now we know that God heareth not sinners. Okay, this is the Pharisees again. Uh, or no, uh, sorry, this is again the blind man. The man that was blind. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if a man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? 
If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Okay? <laughs> it's amazing. I, I, I love this blind man, because this blind man at this point, okay, this blind man, he is not saved yet. He has not trusted Jesus as his Messiah. He doesn't fully understand who Jesus is. He said he's a prophet. And yet, the wheels are turning. His life has been changed because he's been given his sight, and he's standing up against people that are normally uh, cowering, you're towering over you and you're, you're, you're afraid of them. You're cowering in fear, as his parents were. And he's not afraid to say, it's amazing that you guys don't know where he is from because he gave me my sight. And we know, you guys know, that God doesn't hear sinners. But if a man's a worshiper of God, that person, God will hear. And then he says, since the world began, it was you know, never heard of that a man opened the eyes of the blind. If this man weren't of God, he couldn't do that. And then it says, are you teaching us? You were born in sin, and you're trying to teach us? And then they cast him out. Okay? Like it was said, they kicked him out of the synagogue. You are no longer, we're revoking your membership. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I thought about that. I didn't, I, I didn't go through and, and, and look like you're saying, but I was pretty sure from my recollection that I don't remember that ever happening. But in fact, absolutely. This is the first time in history that somebody had been given their sight that had been born blind. And so this man, because of his stance, standing up for Jesus, not even knowing that Jesus is the Messiah at this point, stands up for him and loses his synagogue membership. Okay? Now listen to this. This is, this is so wonderful. Verse 35. Jesus heard about that. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And when he had found him, okay, Jesus went looking for this guy. When he found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Do you believe in the Son of God? Jesus asked him. He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Now here the word Lord isn't like the man is saying, You are God. But it's kind of like a Hebrew equivalent of the word Sir. You know? The man, he, he respects Jesus so much to the point that he's willing to lose his synagogue membership, believing that Jesus is a man of God, Jesus is a prophet. And Jesus comes to him after he was cast out and says, do you believe in the Son of God? And he says, who is he, sir, that I might believe? Jesus said unto him, thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. Now listen to this. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Okay? At that point, this man is realizing not only that Jesus is the Messiah, but that he is the Son of God, that he is God himself. Otherwise, he would not be worshiping him, okay? I believe the first reference to Lord is kind of like a polite way of saying master or sir, but the second Lord, I believe, is deity. And we see that in his, as a result in him worshiping Jesus. And Jesus said, for judgment I am coming to this world, that they which see not might see the blind man, and that they which see the Pharisees, 
might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words. Okay, so they're still kind of hanging around, trying to see what's going on, you know, peeking out from behind a rock. And they say unto him, are, are, are we blind also? Now, I don't know if that's an honest kind of, uh, you know, question, or if it's like a, a sarcastic, are we blind too? You know, but listen to what Jesus says to them. Last verse in John 9. He said unto them, if you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remaineth. What does that mean? Does that mean that if you don't have physical sight that you're not a sinner? That's not what this is referring to. It's saying that if you recognize your shortcoming, if you recognize that you're lost and undone before God and that you need to be given sight, that you need salvation, that you need Him to give you sight, then you will see. But if you're like these Pharisees that say, we can see, we're fine then your sin remains. And even though you say you see, you are literally or spiritually blind. I have a verse in reference here. Hebrews chapter 11. Actually, let's turn there, kind of in conclusion. Hebrews 11, verse number 24. Hebrews 11, verse 24 says, by faith Moses, if you're not there, you can just listen, that's fine. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, and this is interesting, is talking about Moses, relevant to the passage we looked at in John 9, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had uh, respect unto the recompense of that reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Okay? And so, Moses had spiritual sight. Okay? By faith. By faith. I'm going to share this with you. This is a blessing at the bottom of your page. For 51 years, this is a true story, for 51 years, Bob Edens was blind. He couldn't see a thing. His world was a black hall of sounds and smells. He felt his way through five decades of darkness. And then he could see. A skilled surgeon performed a complicated operation and for the first time, Bob Edens had sight. He found it overwhelming. This is his own words. I never would have dreamed that yellow is so yellow, he exclaimed. I don't have the words. I'm amazed by yellow, but red is my favorite color. I just can't believe red. I can see the shape of the moon, and I like nothing better than seeing a jet plane flying across the sky, leaving a vapor trail. And of course, sunrises and sunsets. And at night, I look at the stars in the sky and the flashing light. You could never know how wonderful everything is. Now take that literal, physical example and take it into the spiritual realm. Those that have not trusted Jesus as their Messiah, they are spiritually in a complete hall of darkness. And yet, when you trust in Jesus by faith, you gain immediate spiritual sight. 
Your eyes are illuminated to this word. I mean, before I was ever saved, I could try and read this book. I don't understand it, you know? And once you have God's Holy Spirit within you, it's like you kind of understand what's going on, that there's a reason for things. It's not just haphazard. It's not just fate, you know? It's not just whatever. God is orchestrating things in our lives. And now, if you trust in him by faith as your Savior, you can kind of see the hand of God in ways that you couldn't before when you weren't saved. When you weren't saved, you're just looking at this physical world. You're looking at your problems. You're looking at this guy, that guy, you know, whatever. But once your eyes are open to the spiritual reality of things, uh, it's amazing. Um, just being able to understand that God loves you and that he created you. He created this whole world, every single thing that we see. If we look at it through the lens of secular humanism and evolution, we're missing everything. But once we understand what the Bible teaches about this world, it, it, it just it changes everything. Having forgiveness for our sins changes everything. Understanding that we're saved by faith and we didn't earn it, it's by grace, changes everything. And so anyway, um, for those that may see this uh, Bible study that haven't trusted Jesus as their Messiah, you can do that today and have spiritual sight. And for those of us that know Jesus as our Savior, sometimes it's good to remind, remind ourselves what it was like when we were spiritually blind and to be more grateful for now having this unbelievable spiritual sight, having a relationship with God, being able to cry out to him as Abba Father and, 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 and coming boldly to the throne of grace to find grace to help in time of need. Any comments or questions or discussion before we close? Yes. how they transgressed the tradition of the commandment of God that they might keep their own tradition. Oh, mm -hmm. To me, that has always been a very clear, articulate example of Jesus protesting. What did he protest? And it, it, to me, it has a parallel with what we call Protestantism. What do we protest? Mm. Well, he protested when you supplant the commandment of God with a human, human teaching, mm -hmm. tradition of the elders, we have that in Catholicism where we protest that there would be a, a Catholic doctrine that would supplant the Word of God. Yeah. And to give you an example of that, like he gave them an example by saying, Father and Mother, and you do this. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus said, Call no man on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Yeah. And all of you are brothers. And so then now they, they have to call the priest father. Pope means father. It's Italian word. So to me, that is also an example of the Protestant Jesus, the spirit of it anyway. So to me, that makes Protestantism a good word if you understand what he, what he did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's Absolutely. That's what I wanted to say because uh, I, I try to, sometimes I try to talk to a Catholic person mm -hmm. uh, because I believe so many of them really love Jesus, but they're, they're misled. Yeah. And if you're misled since you're a little child, I heard one time that said, if you give us a little child until the age of 12, he'll never be converted or you know, he'll be a Catholic when he dies. Yeah. Hmm. That's all. Sure. Well, thank you. That's a good observation. We certainly should uphold the Word of God against those that would, you know, seek to supplant it with their own opinions and teachings that are contrary to God's Word. We're definitely against that and trying to bring out the truth just like Jesus did to those people that uh, were either 
leading the blind or they were just led astray. They were misled, like Tom said. Yes. I say hallelujah, praise the Lord, amen. It's been a great lesson and I appreciate his comments. Oh, praise the Lord. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's too bad Mark, uh, Mark was planning on being here, but when he came in today, he said, I'm not going to try, so. I know what it means to really love Catholic, because I was, I grew up in the Catholic first church. Mm. And then my son had the same thing happen to him. His mother's brother married a Catholic, and he had grown up with Catholic first cousins. Yeah. And in the family, we love one another. We get together like at Christmas or sometime. And so, um, but I, I, I love for them to know what is really true. Yeah. And I, I've noticed, uh, since I told somebody not, five of my best friends, Christian friends in the gym I go to, they grew up Catholic and are now going to Bible school. Okay, yeah. Me, I can see that God is bringing people out of the Catholic church. I've known many, and do know many, that, that have you know come, come through that direction. Yeah. They have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. I'm still praying for one guy that um, he goes to the Baptist church and is a greeter there, but he hasn't joined because he still has Catholic baptism only. Oh. His wife and three kids are all members and baptized. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. He's, he's a really dear friend of mine. Yeah. So I've talked to him about some of these things. Okay. Well, that's good. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Doug. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll pray for Doug. Maybe he's maybe he's listening, and we'll go ahead and, and, and pray for, and thank the Lord for the food, as well. Thank you, Lord, for this night. Thank you so much, Lord, for uh, your word and the example uh, of this blind man, this dear blind man who was Jewish, uh, and we'll meet him in heaven, uh, certainly, Lord. And uh, we're excited about meeting you first of all and most of all uh, in the flesh, Lord. We pray for the. Um, refreshments that have been provided. Well, we thank you for them, Lord. We uh, just pray that you would bless the food and the fellowship and the time that we have together and, and uh, bring us all back safely next week. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4433. Shalom.